And welcome back into the Bama Beat Podcast, brought to you by Wickles Pickles. This is your host, Clint Lamb, sitting here once again with Brett Hudson. Brett, how you doing on this Monday morning? I'm good, man. How's it going? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Busy weekend. I'm sure you can relate. Yeah, yeah, to say the least. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I must say it's, it, a lot of things felt normal about this weekend, like, like leaving the house to go to a football game and uh, staying late after football games and staying up late the night of and all that. But uh, dude, being in the stadium was trippy. Was it really? Dude, that was, that was something else. Like I, I just walked right across the walk of champions. Didn't didn't have to wade through a sea of humanity for 20 minutes trying to do it. I just walked up to it and walked across it like yeah, that, like it was a regular Tuesday on campus or something. It was it was so weird. Yeah, that's that would be extremely weird. Um, now, granted, how was the being inside the stadium? First of all, how was the new press box? Press box is solid. Um, it's on the east side now, so the sun is in is in our face, which is unfortunate but i mean people who sit on the east side of the of the stadium probably don't have much uh much tolerance for for complaining on that one so i won't um being in the stadium was was strange honestly it's it's hard to lock in on on a game like you would in the past because you don't have that environment that really heightens your your attention like i'm i'm used to from from the time the, the team starts to leaves the locker room to come into the tunnel. From that time until ball is kicked, I'm usually sitting in my seat with at least one of my legs twitching, like doing this this restless restless leg syndrome type thing, just raring to go, like uh, energy on high. And on Saturday, kickoff just happened. And I was like, oh, oh, the game's starting now. Okay, cool. There wasn't this fever pitch of of noise and energy and everything else that kind of heightens your your awareness for for a football game. It, it was it was strange, man. It's it's different in in a lot of ways. And I, I know I, I imagine people who were at the game liked it because they were a lot fewer people and they had breathing room and it wasn't impossible to go to the bathroom or anything like that. But uh, being there. As not a ticket holder was it, it was real real weird. I imagine that's what Miami fans feel like all the time. <laughs> I knew I knew that uh, some kind of joke was coming. Uh, so how was the? I guess with now the new press box is behind glass, correct? Yeah. So it was probably pretty difficult to kind of get a feel for how the atmosphere was with the limited fan base. That's uh, that's true. There there are some smaller windows up at the top that open for for air and volume, but the the main windows are, are closed. So I, I'm I'm sure my perception of of the crowd noise was probably inhibited a little bit by that, but not to the full extent because again, it's not fully closed. There there is some opening for for air and for crowd noise. Okay. All right. Well, I guess now. We'll kind of start talking about this game. Pretty interesting game uh, when you think about it. 52-24 victory for Alabama. Now one of only four teams left in the SEC with a 2-0 record joining Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee. The only team from the SEC West still undefeated. And uh, what were your some of your initial thoughts on, on Alabama's big win? 
I have a question for you. Shoot. Having having watched both games and at least watched the Texas A&M game twice, if not both of them twice by now, are you at all concerned about Alabama's pass rush? Um, ooh, that's tough to say. Uh, you know, one sack – or excuse me, no sacks, uh, but eight QB pressures on the day – and I just I kind of like what Texas A&M did offensively. You're probably going to see a lot of that, but I feel like it was sort of unfair to Alabama's pass rush because you saw, um, you know, a lot of motions, a lot of quick throws from Kellen Mond. They got the ball out of his hands quickly, uh, a lot. Did not really press the ball downfield too much. Very difficult for you know against a veteran offensive line with a ton of experience and starts across the board. Uh, very tough to get consistent pressure when they're doing the things that they were doing to negate your ability to create that pressure in the first place. So I understand that it was frustrating for a lot of fans and there was a lot of, um, you know, situations there, there was a lot to be concerned about with the defense in my opinion, or I wouldn't say maybe a lot, but there was enough. Uh, but I just think that it was the, also the way the Texas A&M attacked Alabama. So as far as the lack of pressure now, granted they, they also had a lack of pressure against Missouri as well, at least for the most part. And that can be, you know, similar, uh, not to the same degree as Texas A&M. I think Texas A&M saw a guy by the name of Will Anderson and the limited impact that he was able to make in, you know, not a ton of opportunities. But they also, you know, you get LeBron Ray back. You got Christian Barmore. Uh, Christopher Allen up to this point hadn't really shown me too much. Uh, we'll kind of have to see. But I, I think there was enough there for Texas A&M to say, okay, this this front is capable of getting pressure and we have a good offensive line, but let's make their jobs as easy as possible by doing a lot of uh, different things to kind of try to negate some of that pressure. So I'm not overly concerned. Maybe I should be. Do you have any different thoughts? No, I mean, not necessarily. I, I just asked because as you, as you mentioned, it was, they were sackless in 44 pass attempts from, from Kellen Mond. And, uh, I think they only have three sacks on the year when uh, I'm trying to pull up the numbers real quick. I wrote a story on this. Um, you can find it on tiesports.com. Um, their opponents have attempted something like 87 passes this year. So Alabama's getting one sack per every like 28 pass attempts from their opponents. And it's two games into the year. So take take the the small sample size disclaimer and add it to this. But it's I think it's 63rd out of 74 FBS teams that have played a game this year, or at least a game this year. So pass rush isn't producing sacks. Now, as, as Saban said after the game, and again, more more numbers and uh, Saban context and, and thoughts on this can be found on the on the side at tidesports.com. Uh, uh, he kind of thought the pass rush did what it was supposed to do. He thought the the pass rush was supposed to contain Kellen Mond a lot more than it was supposed to sack Kellen Mond since since he ran all over Alabama last year and he did more or less nothing on the ground uh on Saturday so uh that must have been what they wanted to accomplish out of their pass rush and and the mission was accomplished there clearly looking at Kellen Mond's rushing numbers I, I just thought it was interesting that with a more experienced defensive line with Dylan Moses back with Christian Harris, uh, a year extra experience under his belt. Now I, I think, and with the freshman class supposed to provide some, some pass rush ability. I, I imagine if you told me or, or anyone that 
Alabama only had three sacks through two games, you would probably be kind of confused. Exactly. And and that's an excellent point from from Nick Saban as far as, you know, the, their game plan going in. It's not necessarily against a quarterback who has the ability with his legs like Kellen Mond. It's not in those obvious passing situations or in a lot of situations. It's not pinning your ears back and just getting out to the quarterback because if you try or if you're pushing too hard upfield, you're creating lanes for him to step up and take off. Uh, you have to play that kind of quarterback a lot differently. And when you combine that with the things, like I said, you're talking about, you know, very quick plays, a lot of motion stuff that was creating guys open early in play. Uh, and, and when you take that into consideration with everything else, it was just it, it didn't set up well for Alabama to have some huge sack day. Uh, some against some of these other teams, a team, you know, Ole Miss is probably going to be pretty difficult, too. Now, they'll push the ball downfield or at least they'll try to more. Uh, probably than Texas A&M did, and, and those you know longer developing plays can can allow Alabama's defensive front the opportunity to to maybe get some big sacks, and we'll kind of see how that plays itself out. But yeah, I, I just I'm not overly concerned with that aspect. I'm more concerned from the defense. I'm concerned about a, a couple of things. Uh, I'm concerned about some of the missed tackles. They had several of them. Uh, you know, Jordan Battle had a missed tackle on a second and four where he could have tackled him for essentially no gain and allowed Jalen Watermeyer to, to get a big first down. That was early in the game. Right. Uh, Anaya Smith uh, situation. Yeah. And that was just and, and the fact that he didn't hit the ground, um, the, the fact that he pulled up and was able to stand up just fine. He didn't really sacrifice at all. He, he gave a very small shove, very minimal effort, thinking that Anaya Smith was just going to go out of bounds. And that's not the kind of effort that Nick Saban's going to want to see. You know, you got to make sure that you're you shouldn't be making those sort of assumptions. Uh, you can allow big plays like that. And lucky for Alabama, what it did was it shifted momentum towards Texas A&M. They were able to score. Uh, a touchdown early in the second quarter to tie things up, and then of course the floodgates opened for Alabama following that point. But yeah, I, I just it, those were more so the things, and, and I just didn't feel like that Dylan Moses played with a ton of confidence. He played. Um, I was really I was watching him on just about every play. What I'll have to do is go back and watch some of his tape pre-injury. Uh, just to make sure, because there was a lot of situations where offensive lineman was getting to the second level and reaching him, and it just seemed like before his ability to read and react, his explosiveness, you know, any sort of stuff where you're trying to take, you know, stretch things wide, like uh, Texas A&M did a couple of times. Those were the kind of plays that you know Dylan Moses loved because he had the ball hawking ability to, you know, press the line of scrimmage get downhill in a hurry and makes uh, quality tackles. And I just didn't really see that as much from him. And I thought he played better against Missouri. So I don't know what it was this week, um, if there was anything. But I'm still – I want to say I'm about three-fourths of the way through the the defensive side of the football in the game. So I still have that fourth quarter uh, to go back and watch. But I, I just uh, – as the game continued to progress, I didn't see him getting more and more comfortable. It, it just didn't seem like he was quite himself. So – those were a few of the things uh, that were frustrating. There were a couple of times, you know, penalties on both sides of the football uh, continue to be an issue. I think there was like a, a drive offensively where there was like three in a row, but that's, you know, talking about the other side of the football, we're kind of talking about defense. But for me, uh, for anybody looking at the total yardage that they gave up and things like that, it's like that. that's kind of the world we live in. It's very difficult to be the old Alabama that uh, we all grew accustomed to seeing in the early, you know, 2010s. Uh, or even in the the, the late 2000s, uh, that kind of style doesn't exist with 
sort of offenses that you're playing on a week-to-week basis, uh, you're just not going to see that. But overall, I think the defense is still showing a ton of potential, but there's a lot to work on still. Yeah, we talked about tackling last week, and I'm I'm still not going to dive in on on tackling being an issue, but I, I do think that's something that probably should show improvement sooner rather than later. Uh, that that is one of those things that we you probably shouldn't be super sharp on that in week one, but you can expect to see that improve pretty rapidly to the point that you're sharp at it by week four or so. Um, yeah. So so I, I would imagine seeing that improve against Ole Miss and specifically against Georgia, um, not only for where it falls chronologically, but also the the talent and the caliber of opponent you're you're getting there. I think those two those, those two games will will say something about the kind of tackling team that Alabama is going to be going forward on the subject of the total yardage, the 450 yards that a and put up. I think they were helped and not to say that A&M didn't have a good offensive plan. They, they obviously did and they executed it reasonably well. I, I thought they were helped a lot by some defensive breakdowns in Alabama secondary that created bigger plays that than they would have been otherwise. And to a certain extent, you're going to have those in every game, but like maybe one, if you're, if your defense is operating the way that it should be, whereas now you're, you're having a lot more than that. That's creating some, some big chunk plays. And that some of that is to be expected when, when you have three new starters on, on the defensive side of the ball and on the, in the secondary, excuse me. And, and one of them happens to be a, a freshman, but looking at the chunk plays, Texas A&M, had nine passing plays of 15 yards or more. Two of them went for more than 40. Um, That is something that can and will improve over time. And I would imagine you're going to see the the performance improve, the statistical performance improve as the secondary starts to to gel and better understand their, their responsibilities with those three new starters. Or at least that's the hope anyway. Yeah, and one of those big plays that you're talking about was that kind of swing pass to Anaya Smith mm-hmm. where Daniel Wright didn't force him out of bounds and he was able to take it down the sidelines for a touchdown. And on that play, uh, that was one of the breakdowns you were talking about. And I still don't know necessarily who was, was responsible. You know, I went back and looked, and you know, the, the, the receiver in motion carried Josh Job uh, across the formation to the other side of the field. But as he crossed, uh, you know, I guess got outside of the the other tackle on the far side. Dylan Moses, who was the linebacker, the inside linebacker of that side, kind of shifted like he was going to go out there and cover him. And then your backside linebacker, which was Christian Harris, who was uh, he was being brought on a delayed blitz. That meant that Anaya Smith coming out that backside was wide open. And I don't know if if Joe was supposed to go with that receiver in motion. I don't know if it was Dylan Moses who was supposed to let Josh Joe go with that receiver, and he was supposed to be covering the back out of the backfield. Um, it was one of those two guys who was responsible. It was either Josh Job or Dylan Moses, uh, but it was those sort of mental breakdowns that created some of those big plays. And I'll, I'll give credit on that uh, kind of second touchdown pass to the tight end by Texas A&M. That was a great play design, and those yeah. kind of things are, are going to happen. You, you would like for them to not happen, but you know these players are human, and they're going to make mistakes. And I could totally see with the way that that play was designed – 
how they, you know that player was schemed wide open, and, and that's going to frustrate Alabama fans. But there was a lot of other situations where there was some breakdowns that was a lot less, you know, understandable. And and so those are things that need to be fixed. It's not time to be going and, and, and saying, you know, even people that I know were texting me and continue to show frustrations with with uh, a Pete Golding. And, and it's funny to me because, you know, Mac Jones can throw an interception. That's Mac Jones's fault. A player can drop a, a fumble. Uh, and you know, that's that player's fault. It, you know, they, the offense can, you know, have several penalties in a row. That's those individual players faults. You never hear everybody automatically jump into Steve Sarkeesian for those sort of breakdowns, but you let the defense, any defensive player make sort of some sort of dumb penalty or give up a big play or miss a tackle. And, and it automatically, the blame gets shifted to Pete Golding. And I just find that double standard very, uh, you know, unfortunate because I think that in those other situations, Steve Sarkeesian should be holding some of the blame, but the player should be as well. And you need to be looking at it that way from the Pete Golding player perspective, defensive side of the football. There are certain things that, you know, you can get frustrated with, with the coaching staff about. But also, if you're getting on to Pete Golding, you probably need to be getting on to, to Nick Saban to some degree too because he's got a huge hand of the defense. And he's, I, I guarantee you, he's not watching Pete Golding every day teach tackling drills or whatever and going out there and saying, you know what, we're just going to let him run it. And that they're missing tackles. Nick Saban is involved in all that kind of stuff too and how he teaches how to tackle. The, the the being disciplined on defense, he's got a huge part uh, or plays a huge role in that. So if you're going to be assigning all the blame to Pete Golding, I feel like that's unfair. Uh, but I still think that Pete Golding is going to end up having a pretty good year as a defensive coordinator. He just ran into an offense that Alabama was very uh, concerned with the kind of success that A&M had in last year's game. And they were returning, you know, outside of their receivers, you know, the running backs, uh, the offensive line, the tight end, the quarterback, you know, they were returning pretty much everybody but the receivers. And Kellen Mond in particular, and the way that he had success last year, that went into how they determined they were going to play in this season. And that's how you kind of saw some of the results that you did. So I just don't think it's time to be concerned. But I will say that, I, you know, there are some things that need to be cleaned up. And I have to be able to acknowledge that. I can't just completely, you know, make up excuses every week and say it's going to get better and then it never does. I'm, you know, the, the things that I see that are concerning, what needs to be cleaned up or fixed, I'm going to kind of put that out there. And then over the course of the next few weeks, if they continue to be issues, that's when I'll start saying, okay, there's a big problem here. I just think that you're absolutely right. The tackling in week two, you would expect it to be better. It really wasn't. Uh, but the, the if it gets to week three and four and five where you're the half, the halfway point of the season and it's not better, that's a huge cause for concern, and we'll certainly address it as such. Uh, to your point, it's funny how the only people who make mistakes are quarterbacks and defensive coordinators. Yeah, that's a great there point. Like a hundred other people involved <laughs> with the on-field product of a college football team, but the only two people who ever make mistakes are the quarterback and the defensive coordinator. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, you would you would think there would be more attention being paid to roughly ninety other human beings on a football team who are literally perfect. That is such a great point. Ever. That's a that's that's a tweet-worthy uh, statement right there. Uh, why, why am I spending all this time writing about screens and punters when I should be doing in-depth profiles on the perfect human beings on Alabama's football team, <laughs> of course, other than the quarterback and the defensive coordinator? I don't know. Just It's funny how that works out. 
sometimes. That, that's um, a fantastic point. Yeah, so keep that in mind. Like, And the best case I can make for that is no one can pretend, and I really don't want to beat up on him more than he deserves because he did make a really nice play on that pick six, but let's not pretend that Daniel Wright was taught to, to make that non-tackle he made on the sideline. No one taught Daniel Wright to do that. Yeah. Pete Holding didn't, te- didn't teach Daniel Wright to do that. Charles Kelly didn't teach Daniel Wright to do that. Nick Saban didn't teach Daniel Wright to do that. I bet Daniel Wright's high school coaches didn't tell him to do that. And the, and, and that wasn't the only play. He Now, he had the pick six. He's certainly, you know, he's capable of making some big plays, but he's got to clean up his – and I don't think it's an issue as far as that he can't do it. I think that he just – he can 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 sometimes get lazy with the way he tries to tackle, and he's got to become a lot more consistent with that. And if that continues to be an issue, I guarantee you, Nick Saban and and Pete Golding are going to make a change at that position because you know you can big, but if you're giving up some of those plays, I just I think Nick Saban would rather have the steady approach of okay, maybe somebody that's back there that doesn't give up as much but they also don't produce as much as far as the game changing type of plays i think he would much rather have a steady presence back there so daniel wright if you can keep that playmaking ability but just clean up some of those areas that you need to be working on and cleaning up i think you're going to become a a pretty darn good safety and i think you already are uh but you know that that's let's wrap up the defensive discussion with with this you and i both have been pretty transparent that we both think pete Golding can be a successful defensive coordinator here, but we've also been transparent in that if things don't make pretty significant strides in middle to later portions of of this year, then then our minds will probably change. And there are going to be schematic challenges for for Pete Golding. He's going to have to deal with a Mike Leach air raid down the road. He's going to have to deal with a Gus Malzahn, Chad Morris offense down the road. Um, LSU is still a thing. I, Wayne I Kiffin this week. Yeah, Kiffin this week. There, there are going to be schematic challenges for him down the road. But I, I really think the tackling could be a reckoning on him. If it doesn't improve in the next three to four games or so, then you might start to see our tone change on that, regardless of, of how he – handles the schematic challenges of Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach and uh, so on and so forth. So we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. On the offensive side of the ball, I'm going to start this one off with another question, just like I did on the defensive side. Through through two games, do you think the public opinion of Mac Jones has improved, regressed, or stayed the same? Oh, man. Uh, No no doubt that it's improved. And granted, it was funny uh, after that interception against Texas A&M, all these people that have been praising him and stuff immediately started kind of shifting. Uh, I can can just see it. Like there's a reason that I like following a lot of different Alabama fans because I want to see how people are reacting to certain things that take place during games, during the offseason news. You know, I want to kind of be able to get as good. And I think if you only follow media members and certain people, players and coaches and things like that, I just think that you kind of lose that. And that's why I follow so many people. Uh, I want to get the different reactions from. And and one thing that I noticed was after that interception, people were singing his praises, thought he was, you know, definitely in the Heisman conversation. He ends up throwing that interception for, you know, about 
I don't know, 10 minutes or so. It just the, the, the negativity about here we go with, with Mac Jones. These are the kind of mistakes that, you know, uh, that get you beat things like that. And then all of a sudden he like with the same situation with Auburn, with the pick sixes last year, he bounced back from it, ended up having a huge day and the perception of him, uh, he, incredible deep ball passer has a great feel for the offense. Now has an offense that is completely tailor made for him and his skill set. He's still got you know three options at receiver uh, with with John Mechie in the way that he stu- uh, has stepped up in these first two weeks. He didn't have a, just a massive performance in week one, but you saw with those couple catches, he's he's capable of being a big play guy, and he's averaging over thirty, like I want to say like close to thirty five yards per catch over seven receptions through two games and a couple of scores. And so he's providing that number three option like we kind of knew that he would. And one thing that we said we'd monitor, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, as far as the use, like it's going to be the three-headed monster. It's not going to be regressed to just the two. Um, different guys are going to have different you know weeks where they, they're the guy. And this was one of uh, John Mechie's weeks. To before I address Matty, to your point about Mac after the interception, the best thing I can say for Mac there is after the interception, he completed five of his next six passes for 74 yards, averaging 12.3 yards per attempt. And those five completions went to four different pass catchers one to Waddle, one to Smitty, one to Forrestall, and two to that's something that I'm hoping to write about later in the week, or if not later in the week, hopefully at some point during the year. Seems like every time Saban was asked about Mac Jones in the preseason, the thing he brought up was how he reacts to mistakes, how he reacts to bad plays, and does he, to, to borrow the Saban adage, live, play every play like it has a life of its own. Don't let the play before impact the current, impact the current play. Don't let the current play impact the next one. Is he able to do that, or does he kind of get in his own head about mistakes he makes and et cetera, et cetera? And that was a, an encouraging first sign out of out of Mac in that regard, because that was really the the first adversity he'd hit this year. The the Missouri game was pretty smooth sailing, so um, I, I thought that was an, an interesting moment in the game, and I'm sure have more interesting moments like that because again, the the level of competition is is going to get is going to increase and it's going to become more consistent later on in the in the season. So that was that was a telling moment for me. John Mechie's performance is the perfect poster boy for the difference between recruiting hype and practice field hype. Think about think about the guys over the last few years who you consistently heard, man, he is balling out on the practice field. We heard that about Jalen Waddle. He stepped up as a freshman. He was dynamite as a sophomore, and here he is as a junior. We heard that about John Mechie the third. As soon as he gets his opportunity, he he goes off for a million yards on Texas A&M. We heard that about Will Anderson Jr., and he's an every-down outside linebacker as a true freshman from opening kickoff of the season. That I think there's a lesson to be learned here about di- differentiating between recruiting hype and, and practice field hype and, and kind of understanding which guys to, to jump on and, and which ones not. If we're going to take the opposite angle of the recruiting hype, I think there's a, one particular player who happens to wear the number one by chance who might be a uh, perfect 
poster child for for the opposite effect. But I I, I mean I, I don't think anyone was surprised by doing what he did because we heard for so often that he's standing out on Alabama's practice field, which ain't an easy thing to do. So when he got his opportunity, he he showed what he'd been doing on Alabama's practice field for the last year, year and a half. Yeah, and we actually saw that uh, in the 8 day game back when he was a true freshman. You right. know, he got offensive MVP or MVP of the game. I don't remember which one, but uh, you know he, he was making his impact known. And, and last year, it was just a matter of the guys who were in front of him were really, really good, and there was four of them. And then you got Slade Bolden, who was also capable of stepping in and getting uh, spot reps. So it was just very difficult for John Mechie, it was not a lack of talent. It was a lack of opportunity. And now those opportunities have come. And another perfect example of what you're talking about, um, you know, is Mac Jones. You know, we heard a lot about him, despite the fact the quarterback battle was going to be coming down to Jalen Hurts or Tua Tungvaloa. We heard about Mac Jones kind of being upset that he was not being talked about in that competition more. Uh, and, and everybody kind of counted him out and, and we would always hear rumblings, you know, whether it be scrimmages, whether it be eight, a games, uh, you know, we actually saw him in the eight, a game a couple of years ago and he put up big performances and, 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 you know, the stuff that the fall scrimmages that we weren't able to get our own eyes on, we come out of it saying, you know, Mac Jones had a pretty darn good day and it was something to monitor. And, and that's why when, he came in for Tua last year. I thought there was going to be a huge drop off because it's Tua Tungavaloa. But I thought I think Alabama's got enough talent around Mac Jones to where where he'll be able to be a serviceable quarterback. And then you realize it's it, I mean he he he's one of those quarterbacks who is capable of elevating the talent around him, and he's already got a ton of it. You know there were some of those balls, and people will say, oh well, you know it's it's the it's starting to prove that it maybe it's a product of the receivers and not the quarterback. And it's like I mean some of those footballs. Uh, couldn't have been thrown any better uh, over the course of two weeks now. And we saw it some last year, uh, you know, against Auburn, he had a couple of very wild throws. He's got tons of talent and ability himself. And, and, and you know, he's one of those that stepped up. And when he got his opportunity, he translated what he was doing on the practice field and in scrimmages to the game field. And that's what allowed him to be a really good quarterback. And John Mechie, the exact same way. Uh, so it's, it's great for Alabama. It's, it makes Steve Sarkeesian's and Mac Jones job a lot easier when you have that third option in the passing game, they become a lot more difficult to stop. And especially when you combine that with having, you know, a veteran offensive line, a, a what's you know supposed to be a really good run game, which, you know, the, the run game looked okay against Texas A&M, but A&M's got a good defensive front. And we knew that was going to kind of be a battle. And in pass protection, the offensive line looked fantastic. You know, I think they only allowed like one sack, uh, but they gave Mac Jones uh, plenty of time to let long developing routes uh, get done and let receivers create separation. And Mac Jones would hit them for for long plays. And we give John Mechie and Mac Jones a ton of credit for those. But you also got to give the offensive line credit too because they, you know, Texas A&M was not able to do that. They didn't have the ability against Alabama's front to let longer plays develop downfield to take shots and really try to loosen things up for a Kellen Mond or, or uh, you know, an Isaiah Spiller uh, in, in the run game. And that ends up being a pretty crucial difference in how this game actually ended up turning out. So huge credit to the offensive line as far as pass protection. As far as run blocking, you saw it some. Uh, would have liked to have seen a little bit more there. But like I said, this was a good defensive front. And a lot of people, because of the way Texas A&M looked against Vanderbilt in the week prior, completely wrote off Texas A&M's ability and, and talent up front. But they're deep. They got a lot of guys who can kind of rotate in there and provide quality reps. And we, I knew it was going to be a tough task for Alabama's offensive line. So 
that wasn't overly surprising as well. Was there anybody else that stood out to you on, on you know, either defense or offense? Well, well, first of all, on the subject of A&M's defensive front, DeMarvin Leal is a problem. Big problem. Or solution, Ooh. depends on how you look at it. <laughs> if you're Texas A&M, he's a solution. Uh, True. But, <laughs> yeah, it's a good point, though. He, he's very disruptive, 6'4", yeah. 290, can play inside, can play outside. But you're right, very disruptive uh, he's defensive line. right? He's, yeah, he's former five-star. That guy. Whew. Yeah, <laughs> they, they had something that dude. Man, he was awesome. Um, your point about the the third threat that Mechie provides is what stood out to to me because I didn't want to overreact to it. It was just one game, but an overwhelming majority of the targets went to Smitty and Waddle in the Missouri game, and I'm kind of wondering in the back of my head if that trend continues. How much longer will it take for opposing defenses to kind of shift their coverages to what they anticipate Smith and Waddle to do on a given snap and kind of force someone else to to beat them? And and I think a performance like this will will nip that in the bud pretty quickly. Now that you've put this on film against a not elite but relatively talented Texas A&M defense, I, I think opposing coaches will – will understand that John Mechie III is a serious threat not to be taken uh, lightly. Uh, I can't think of anything anybody else who, who stood out. I mean, Brian Robinson Jr. got more carries against Texas A&M than he did against Missouri. I mean, the other running backs were more or less non-existent against Missouri. Um, in, in this game, Najee Harris had 12 for 43 and two touchdowns. Brian Robinson ran 10 times for 60 yards. Um he was the only Alabama player to have a run of longer than 10 yards. So there's something to be said there. Um, Miller Forstall had two catches for 23 yards. He's, he was the only tight end who had a catch in this game, despite the fact that they are constantly rotating tight ends. That's something um, I'll be writing about later this week for tidesports.com. Um, you have anything else that, that stood out? You got anything else? Anything else? Well, a cu- couple of notes. Uh, I want to give Malachi Moore a huge shout out because they did try to pick on him uh, over the course That's of the game. SEC freshman of the week, by the way. Yeah, oh, awesome. And very well deserved because he, he stepped up and he battled. And was he perfect? No. But, you know, a couple of pass deflections, got the late interception. I thought that was a nice little cap off for him. Uh, just feel like that he's going to be a really solid player for Alabama, which you saw from week one to week two was uh you know positive progression he played fine in week one i don't think he played terrible but i just i I saw him becoming a guy who you know teams will continue to to try to take some some shots at him because they don't want to throw it uh patister tan josh job is a much more veteran guy the easy target even a guy like Derek stingley last year despite having one of the best you know true freshman seasons for a defensive back in the history of college football when you had christian fulton and, and grant delpit and some of those other guys in the secondary uh, a, a guy like Kerry Vincent there in the nickel, who was a very veteran teams, you know, decided to, to still try to go after, you know, uh, Derek Stingley because he was the true freshman. And you saw Alabama do it with a ton of success, actually, but not nobody else was able to have that kind of success against Stingley. Well, you know, Malachi Moore is going to continue to get tested, even if he has continues to have these great performances. They're going to say, well, we'd rather attack him and try to get something done on him. You know, maybe the, at some point he'll start showing some mental lapses and we can, you know, kind of try to take advantage. He's going to have to continue to have these sort of performances 
uh, over the course of the season, but I definitely wanted to give him a shout out. Also wanted to bring up the fact that, you know, Byron Young is a guy who needs to be getting more snaps on defense. Uh, and I don't know. I haven't went and looked to see what his snap count was just yet, but in the few plays that he was in, I thought he was very impactful. Uh, I, and, I feel like he barely played at all in the first half. Yes, I just didn't see him a ton, and it was more of the a rotation with a Boigby. You had LeBron Ray, you had DJ Dell. If someone rotated in, uh, it was Fedarian Mathis, or it was uh, Christian Barmore in certain situations. Right. So it, it, he just he's. I understand that they're loaded and they're talented across their defensive front, but Byron Young is a guy who I feel like you need to try to get more involved if you can. Well, uh, well, at, it should be easy to get him more involved because has has Justin Aboigbe come off the field like ever? I don't think so. I mean, I mean, like every great. now and then, especially now that Barmore was available this week, every now and then you'll see uh, Mathis or Barmore in in that spot and, and get a Boigby a break. But like, he never came off the field against Missouri, and he was constantly on the field against Texas A&M. And Saban complimented a Boigby early in the preseason, said he was the most consistent of the. Uh, def- of the young defensive lineman coming up. So it, it kind of makes sense that a is playing more than young, but I'm not sure that I expected this between the two. And, and I'll let you finish your point. I'm not sure that it's really justified. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it, all I can really say, uh, because I don't know what's kind of going on behind the scenes, but you're right. Uh, I, I just think that as much as any time that you start saying, well, you got to find a way to get this guy on the field more. Well, at, at what cost, you know, who has to go off the field in order for that to happen. And I understand that that's something that I am keeping in my head, but I still say with what we've been getting from him on limited reps, I mean, he's fresh because he, they have been limited reps, but it was kind of like with Christian Barmore last year where in those, every time he was on the field, he was just making some sort of impact play and you started saying, okay, they got to get this guy more involved. And and the more he showed it, the more the coaching staff was like, yeah, we have to. And you started seeing a lot more Christian Barmore. I think that'll be the case with Byron Young this year. Uh, he, he got snaps as a freshman, plenty of them, but just kind of seems to be the forgotten man. Keep an eye out for that. I thought he played pretty well. And then the last thing I want to bring up before we hop out, uh, off here, James McInvale on, on Twitter. He sent us that message. Yeah! Yeah! yeah. So oh, you, man, I'm glad I'm glad you remembered this. Shout him out. Go ahead. Yes, James Mackingville, and I hope I said, said your last name right. That's the way it's spelled. Uh, but we we had talked about last week. We got a nickname for uh, Dylan Moses, uh, his, his majesty, majesty, and we wanted to see if anybody could come up with something creative oh, for Christian on. Harris. Shout out to the royal protector of the trust crown also. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. My bad. I always forget to do that. How could Always. you possibly forget the royal protector of the trust crown? Royal protector of the trust trust crown. It's, it's I think it's because I stumble across it every time I try to say it. I don't know why. It's like the way that I talk, I can't get through it, so I just avoid it. And just so, His Majesty. So, so anyway, we have the royal prote- the royal protector of the trust crown, uh, the father of His Majesty, and you suggested we need a nickname for Christian Harris to complete the inside linebacker duo. And, and James came through with the best one. He absolutely did. So he, he suggested, you know, he works with the King and Dylan Moses, his name's Christian. So he suggested that we call him the Bishop. And then he also came in and said, we should give Will Anderson the, the label of the night and you can have a chessboard 
in the works as far as defensive pieces. I loved it, man. I, I thought it was great. It, yeah. It's perfect. We, like, like he said, we can work on, um, we can work on nicknames for the outside linebackers, especially as a, as a pecking order becomes more clear there. I did think it was interesting that Will Anderson Jr. was pretty much an every down guy in the Missouri game, but we saw a lot more of Christopher Allen against Texas A&M. So if, 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 a, if a pecking order becomes more clear there, if they're more of a 1A, 1B than a 1 and 2, then, then maybe we can come up with, with both or maybe one of them separates and it's just the, the one of them. But I'm, I'm very much here for the 2020 Alabama defense having his majesty and the bishop at inside linebacker. Absolutely. And to your point, just to kind of – and I'm purely speculating here. Um, because I, I didn't really see anything against Missouri that would have warranted Will Anderson not seeing the same amount of snaps or being kind of the every down guy. If I had to guess why that was the case for anyone wondering why you saw a lot more of Christopher Allen, I think it was because uh, the coaching staff more so trusted Christopher Allen to play uh, assignment football to keep Kellen Mond contained because if you have a true freshman who's trying to do too much, trying to make a play, like I said, pushes too hard upfield, you create lanes for Kellen Mond to step up into and and create with his legs. And I just think that going in, they say we love what we have in Will Anderson, but he's still a true freshman. You know, it, you know, Chris Rowlands plays disciplined football. We're going to have him be the guy to kind of be out there to make sure that we're keeping Kellen contained as possible. Uh, so. That's what I would speculate because, like I said, I don't think that uh, Will Anderson did anything in game one, and, and I didn't really get – I mean, of course, I didn't get to see practice. So I, that could be something that had to do with that, but I think it was more so just who they were playing and, and making sure that they had uh, Kellen Mond locked up and, and they didn't want a true freshman making a true freshman mistake. But that trust will come, of course. I just wanted to point that out. But as far as the, the bishop and his majesty, the king, I love it. I love, you know, Nick Saban's playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. Plays right into that. Um, so I love it. And so James Mackingville, fantastic uh, idea. I'm going to share that on Twitter. I just wanted to give you a shout out here first before I screenshotted it and shared it with everybody else and gave you credit. Um, so appreciate you actually reaching out and, and giving us that idea. That was fun. Brett, you got anything else? No, I'm uh, uh, good. I think we can. We can move on to tomorrow. Well, we're recording this on Monday. On Tuesday, we're recording the the preview for for Ole Miss. So we'll we'll kind of flip it forward in the in the next pod. Do you have on hand how the picks went last week? Uh, no, I do not. I actually, and I probably I'll have that for you tomorrow. I All forget right. that you're now involved too. And and Cecil wasn't able to be on last week, so he just had to send in his picks. And uh, and so I yeah I I. Don't think I did great uh, just from the surface level of what I picked, but I'll be getting it together for everybody, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. All right, cool. All right. Well, thank you guys all for listening in to another episode of the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles.